You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Quarterly Women's Social Club. Dazed and Convicted. Pool Party Radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Net. Net. Rome, before Christ, after Fellini. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me as co-host, Mr. Rob St. Mary. Well, Rome if you want to. Also with us this week is our friend and filmmaker, Jim Tushinsky. Venus favors marriages made at sea. This week we are looking at the 1969 film Fellini Satyricon. The film, as you can gather from the title, is by noted Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini. It's based loosely on the remaining fragments of Petronius's voluminous work. The film is a series of vignettes, some shorter, some longer, about Encopio. I'm going to butcher these names, by the way, folks. Just bear with me. Encopio and his friend Asilito. We follow them through several adventures, including extended party scene put on by a former slave, an ocean voyage, and through a labyrinth. The film mixes sex, philosophy, and death in the era of Nero. Satyricon is one of the more fantastic and surreal of Fellini's films, one that definitely lives up to that term Fellini-esque. So Jim, as our guest, when was the first time that you saw Satyricon, and what did you think? Actually, I first heard about the film when I was about 13. I read a an amazing article in Look Magazine by Betty Rollins. She describes the set, being on the set, him filming this very surreal, it was at the, the Villa of the Suicides was the, the scene. And she sets it up so beautifully, and the photographs, these beautiful color photographs, strange-looking people. It was obvious there was something gay going on, and it just it titillated me to no end and fascinated me. And so I became obsessed with Satyricon, and I couldn't see it because I was too young. So when I was about 16 or 17, I went to visit the University of Illinois Champaign 
on a scouting thing, and I had friends who were going there that I knew from high school. So it just so happened they were showing Fellini Saturicon at one of the film screening places. And in those days, before videotape, you would go to different community centers around campus, and they would be showing foreign films. And I mean, you could see five, six films a weekend easily. All very cool stuff. So I finally got to see Satyricon when I was about 16, 17. I, I, was, I felt so dangerous because I was sneaking in an R-rated movie and I wasn't old enough. Uh, but they didn't care on campus. And I was completely disturbed by it, excited by it, and I had no clue what was going on. But that didn't bother me. I just fell in love with everything that was going on. I bought the soundtrack album and listened to it constantly. The music is so bizarre in this movie that it's kind of hard to listen to it as a soundtrack album, but I did. So I just, I've been crazy about the movie ever since. I did not watch it until I said, hey, let's just throw this on the pile of uh, ancient Rome films for August. It was one of those that when you go into the video store, especially if you have a good video store that collects all your directors on a shelf, it was one of those that I never got around to looking at. And I don't know if it was the box art that MGM put out or whatnot. It just didn't really speak to me. It just had two faces on it. And I was like, yeah, and so what? But I was always a big fan of all of the earlier uh, Fellini films. So it was good to finally get a chance to see it. There is a lot to like in here, and there's a lot in here that I can say is a great influence in other places. And that's what I think is also really interesting for me when it comes to Satyricon. And also the question, like uh, Jim was saying, in terms of uh, sexuality and use of sexuality and sort of how that all plays in as well. I saw this one for the first time this week. Ah! I am very lacking on my Fellini. I've only seen maybe two Fellini films, and this is one of them. The other one, Juliet of the Spirits, I love so much that we're actually going to cover it in, I believe, January? I can't remember. Correct. Yes, thank you. And, uh, yeah, I for some reason, I saw Juliet of the Spirits on the big screen. I saw it over in Windsor. Uh, Otto from the Windsor Film Society or whatever put it on. And ever since then, it's like, I only want to see these Fellini films on the big screen. Did not see Satyricon on the big screen. Really wish I would have, because it is just absolutely gorgeous. All of those emotions that you're talking about, Jim, I was pretty much there yesterday, especially the confusion, but it was one of those where I just kind of let this movie wash over me, and I was a better person for it. Some just amazing visuals to this. I kind of like the way that the story meanders quite a bit, the way that we go from one scene to another, where there's kind of like a very loose connection between the two. But uh, yeah, a fantastic film, and I'm really glad that we chose this for this month because I really see it kind of fitting in with the films that we've been talking about, other than just the Roman stuff, but it really is a good follow-up to our discussion on Caligula and Life of Brian. Mike, you have some amazing adventures in store in your Fellini journey. I can't wait. You know, the, every once in a while, the Michigan Theater will play a Fellini, and I just need somebody to kind of come over to my house, bang on the door and say, let's go. We're doing it. Let's go see Eight and a Half because I need to see that. I need to see La Strada. I need to see the you know all these films. Knights La Dolce of Vida. Knights of Cabiria. You have to see Knights of Cabiria. Oh, my God. There are some later Fellini that I will never see again and I don't ever want to see again. But that has to do with what he was doing in his films after a certain point. Satyricon is a turning point for him in a lot of ways. It's completely unlike anything that came before it. 
Um, and it, well, I wouldn't say completely, but it's very unlike anything that came before it. And it marked sort of a, a reawakening of Fellini after a very, very, very dark period. Yeah, I read quite a bit about him having this kind of dormant period of about, what, four years? I mean, I know he did the Spirits of the Dead, uh, Toby Dammit segment in there, and he did a um, director's notebook, Fellini director's notebook in there as well. But he had started working on another project, and it just wasn't happening, and then he started it again, and he was in bed with, uh, not literally, De Laurentiis, and wasn't having a good time about that, and kicked Master Antonio off of this project, and then he ends up getting really super sick, and it just sounds like a really bad time, and goes for four years without making a film, and then kind of comes back to this one, and poor guy, I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, poor guy, the same year he's doing this, another company ends up doing another version of Satyricon, and apparently they were even using the same lab, so the cans for his were just called Fellini, and then the other one was Satyricon, so they didn't mix the two up. And seeing the two side by side, it would be pretty much impossible to mix these two films up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, actually, what the the thing that really destroyed Fellini was his what was supposed to be his masterpiece film, The Voyage of G. Mastrono, that was the sets were all built. Everything was ready to go. There was a 747 or whatever the big plane was at the time built at uh, Cinesetti. He uh, couldn't make it. He just could not bring himself to make it. There was something blocking him. And he basically walked away from it and you know, wrote Dino De Laurentiis a letter saying, I can't make this movie. I just can't do it. So he became – and then he became very sick and almost died and blah, 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 which leads me to my favorite Fellini story. You know, He and Ingmar Bergman met and became friends, and we're going to make films together. They were going to do a couple of well, – there were two attempts at making like a, an omnibus film with a, one part Fellini, one part Ingmar Bergman. And they got along so well until the second time they got together after Fellini's illness, and they started talking about death. And then it became a competition. Who knew more about death and who had come closest to being dead? And Fellini got very mad at Bergman because he's like, I, I died. I was clinically dead. I was almost dead. This man knows nothing about death. And so they had a big blow up and ended up not working together over a fight of who knew more about death. Which I think is perfect for Fellini and Bergman together. Oh, the movies they could have made together. Fellini had Casanova, and Bergman had The Touch. Imagine bringing together Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould for a fourth time in a Bergman-Fellini co-production. That would be scary. In fact, The Touch was supposed to start as one of these two-part films. Um, Bergman was going to do what wasn't called the touch at the time, but it was the same script idea. Uh, and that's actually another reason it broke apart was because Bergman went off and made the touch and left Fellini cold. But it was after this whole argument about who knows Beth, who knows more about death. So yeah, it's, I'm sorry, I can go on and on. I'll stop. Fellini may know more about death, but Bergman knows more about chess. So there you go. There you go. That's, that's for sure. True. So let's get into the film a little bit. For me, it's really the story of the one character. I mean, we follow this guy in Colpio, played by Martin Potter. We follow him through the whole thing. And then other characters kind of come in and drop out. And we start off the film with him really angry at his friend Asalito, who's played by Hiram Keller, because Asalito has kind of wooed away or, or sold into to another person and Cole Pio's slave, Gatone. 
uh, who's played by Max Born. And I have to say, when they finally reveal Max Born and Cole Peel goes to this theater and there's this whole stage play going on. It's really kind of foggy, very beautiful. Uh, audience doesn't seem to necessarily be into it, which was kind of weird. They're just kind of like vaguely there and everything. And when they reveal Gitone, I was like, wow, I can see why this guy is upset because he is gorgeous in this film. And I really was like, is that, are you sure that's a guy? I, I'm really <laughs> having a hard time with this. I'm, I'm questioning whether I like uh, snails or, or clams in this one right now. <laughs> Which, this goes back to uh, the box art. The MGM DVD box art, as I said, has uh, the one character, the, the older actor who is now in, and I'm having trouble with the names on some of these characters, uh, who is, who has the, the boy, but on the box art, so dressed up, it looks like a young girl. Yeah. So, and for a long time, I thought, oh, you know, like in the beginning, when when you hear him talk about, oh, my love is gone and all of this stuff, and you're kind of wondering, like, who he's talking about. And then you see him in this play, and you're like, wow, there's like a lot of uh, sort of uh, cr- really, really good cross-dressing in here. Well, it's it's interesting because that was the character that, for me, did nothing. I was fascinated by um, Encolpio and, and, and Esquilto. Because they were just, as Fellini says, he had to go to America and Britain to find these characters because he's often quoted as saying, because there were no homosexuals in Italy. But that isn't what he said. What he meant was he couldn't get Italian men to have that sort of I don't care who I'm having sex with look, which is what he needed for these characters because they were completely bisexual and without any sort of Christian morality involved. This was pre-Christian, you know, it was a whole different mindset for for Fellini and for the film. So he needed people who could look, uh, you know, he said he he cast Hiram Keller because of his sneer, because he had such a great sneer and he wanted them to be nasty and awful the whole time. And um, Max Born, he saw as this, you know, perfect nymph. Um, and it's funny, if you see uh, Ciao Federico, which is the documentary that was shot while Satyricon is being filmed, fascinating the, the, to watch Fellini direct these actors. But Max Born, when he talks, he sounds perfectly, you know, like this American hippie dude. He's like, hey, man, yeah, and he's singing, playing his guitar. He's just like a hippie dude. So he's not at all the character that you see in the film. It was amazing. Martin Potter and Hiram Keller are no dogs either. They are definitely very, very handsome. I I kept being reminded of John Philip Law's character from Barbarella while I was looking at Martin Potter. I guess just that, like the striking blue eyes and that kind of blondish, sandy blonde hair and everything. But yeah, it's just the thing that I kept reading, I kind of put together one of those course packs that I like to do when we get into certain films. And the one thing that they kept talking about in these uh, articles about the film is how Fellini was just basically casting for faces and for the the looks more than anything. And I can't remember. I want to say that the the former slave guy might have been um, his butcher or something. Oh, Tremonti, <laughs> so, the the guy that gave the banquet. Yeah, yeah, he was actually no, he's a restaurateur. He owned okay. he owned Fellini's favorite restaurant in Rome. And he wanted somebody. Tremalcio is is usually when he's depicted in literature or anything is usually this big obese guy, and that's not what Fellini wanted. Fellini wanted somebody who looked like he'd been around forever and seen everything. He said he wanted someone to look like like uh, Aristotle Onassis, 
that was his ideal of what Tremalcio should look like. Um, and I think he, it was dead on. I mean, the guy is amazing looking. Um, but yeah, Fellini would, he never went to a casting agent. He always put photos up. He had this enormous photo wall where he would put people's faces of, you know, he would just find people and he cast, you know, everything from male prostitutes hanging around the Coliseum, if you like their face, to washerwomen and fishmongers and whatever he could find. Gypsies hanging out on the road. That was what he used. It was the face. And um, he talks about Satyricon as being, it depends on bad acting for it to succeed. And what he meant is, is that there, there shouldn't be any acting in this. Most of the time he had people mouthing um, just whatever they wanted to. Numbers, some, if they couldn't remember lines, he'd go, just count to ten. And his whole point was he wanted to dub every single voice, but slightly off, so the sync is not correct. So that you get this very weird feeling that you're in a dream, you're not seeing reality. The sound doesn't quite match with everything. Which a lot of critics dinged him for, but that was a very specific thing he wanted in this film. That also goes with sort of the way production in Italy is done anyway, because most of the voices are post-synced. So if you've got someone who has a certain look, you'll just hire someone else to put the words in their mouth. So this is really nothing new. The idea of making it, though, so out of sync is, uh, (laughs) is going one further, though. Yeah, and well, of course, I mean, he, that's how he did everything. They, everything was post-sync. But this was a very specific kind of post-syncing. Uh, you know, his whole sound design in this film is is bizarre. And it all keeps with this, he wanted this to be like, he, he called it, it's science fiction of the past. He did not want his Rome to be historically accurate. He did not want it to be something out of a history book. He wanted it to be something out of subconscious and dreams and a very pre-Catholic era and sort of to free himself of all of that and present this what he thought of as the same as uh, what was going on in 1968 around the world youth culture um, fighting the you know corrupt uh, rich people he saw that as all working out in the same way even as it, as it did in Rome in ancient Rome it does now and that's what got him excited about doing this project is he saw a bunch of hippies and he thought wow they just they're like puppies he says they don't They'll just have sex with whoever they want to, and it's all very free. And he was fascinated by that because he could never do that. He was so Catholic that this was a sort of this attempt to step out of that, I think. This is something that's kind of interesting, and Mike and I were talking about this before we recorded the show, sort of how the marketing of the film is uh, before Christ, after Fellini, is yeah. I believe the tagline that right. you hear in the trailer. But there's this discrepancy in terms of historically sort of where it takes place because when right. you read certain things, it says it takes place during Nero's reign, which of course is after Christ. Yeah, but he didn't want any – I mean there was to be no Christian in here at all because that would take away from what he was trying to show, which was this – a state of mind and a psyche that was pre-anything that has is screwing up modern life as – Well, he didn't really see it as screwing up. He just saw it as wanting to go back so far that he could be dealing with a period of time where that was not even an issue. There were other gods. There were other things that were other psychology. But he even wanted this to be free of psychology. There was to be nothing there that could sort of – you could attach yourself to. It was to be a complete – like science fiction, completely – complete fantasy. 
Well, the other thing that I find interesting in this, and you were talking about Fellini talking about the the hippies of the era, is how sexuality is used in the film, and it doesn't seem to condemn bisexuality or homosexuality. And what I mean by this is when you look at a film such as we did Caligula, and on Caligula right. we talked about the line that was uh, done in the, rest, the restoration of Spartacus about the uh, snails right. or oysters. Uh, oysters. Snails. Right. Yeah. And how bisexuality, both of Tiberius and also of the, the character played by Olivier in Spartacus, that bisexuality is used in a way as a marker of them being um, not on the level or being arch or being decadent. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Evil. Where yeah. in here, it just seems like we accept it as is because there's the aspect of, okay, gay relationships, gay marriage at one point, all of these things. And it's not, it's just taken as this is the way it was. And right. I find that very interesting that it's not um, used in that negative way. Well, you know, Fellini was extremely curious about homosexuality and bisexuality. And he had a lot of re- very intimate relationships with younger men that was not they were not sexual but they were definitely very intense and very intimate and so it's you know it's always conjectured that fellini was bi curious but never could do anything about it um and so he you know he was fascinated by this and he was fascinated by the fact that that young people in the 60s didn't seem to care about who they were having sex with that it was perfectly okay. And then I think, really, it opened his mind up a lot. And that's why one of the reasons he wanted to make it. And it's funny because in a lot of the interviews he does around the same time, when people bring up, you know, it's like, oh, you're dealing with homosexuality. And, and you know, he would say, well, yes, this is my film about homosexuality, which, of course, is not true at all. It's one aspect of it. It's just thrown into the mix with, all, with everything else. But he he kind of played up the fact that he was making a film about homosexuals, um, as this is you know he was trying to titillate people. God, Fellini does homosexuality. What could that be like? In fact, he went with a, a film crew for a, a, a documentary called A Director's Notebook that was being done um, around the same time as he was preparing Satyricon, and they went down into the uh, the Colosseum where a lot of gay men would go cruising at night. And apparently a bunch of gay men had heard about the fact that he was making Satyricon and, and knew that it was, gonna, it was going to be a very gay film. Uh, and they came up to him, actually came up to him and, and thanked him even before the film came out because it had gotten out in the news that Fellini was going to do this. So it was kind of a big deal for him. But for him, it was also a bit of a joke. You know, he's like, haha, I'm making a film about homosexuality. What else can I do that will fry your brain? He was very much a trickster and somebody who wanted to get as much publicity as possible. So just to put this in a little bit more historical context as far as the film itself goes, this is set during the era of Nero. And Nero it was two emperors after Caligula. We talked about Caligula a little bit two weeks ago. talked about Claudius succeeding him. Nero is the successor to Claudius, which is always weird to me because I thought that that, you know, I, I am very familiar with these names, but I also thought there were a lot of people in between them, not realizing how quickly in succession these people who have been, you know, very much part of the, the filmic record anyway, were around, like, bing, bang, boom. Yeah. Here we go. Here's all these guys. And 
this is set right around, I want to say, like in 50 AD, somewhere around in there, because I want to say that Nero passed away or committed suicide somewhere around 60 AD. And there's talking here about the new Caesars and all this kind of stuff. And this is maybe just a few years. I want to say Paul of Tarsus had his whole thing, you know, on the road to Damascus um, around like 30 AD. So Christianity definitely is not really affecting stuff very much. I mean, we've got Nero throwing the Christians to the lions, good for him, all that kind of stuff, but we don't like Christianity and this whole moral universe that that is bringing in is not part of the story, which I kind of appreciate. And and I know that you know you just talked about how Fellini was trying to get away from that, but I wanted to read this little quote from him because I, I really thought that he kind of nailed it on the head when he talks about what Christianity brought to us in this whole living with Christianity for 2,000 years, and he's trying to get away from that. So he says, I don't think in all fairness we can judge the Romans because we're Christians. We have been condemned to the Christian way of life over the past 2,000 years. We have invented the conscience. We have given a moral value to things. We have separated values from non-values. We have developed a system of values. We have set up various limits between the physical and the spiritual. We have weeded out we have a construction of the world of labels, tags. We have invented symbols. We look at things from a moral point of view. Here, for example, we are speaking of the bestiality of the Romans, but we are speaking of it as Christians. For the Romans, it wasn't beastly at all or cruel. For them, perhaps, the remorse we feel as Christians would have been considered beastly and human. That is unworthy of or beneath the dignity of man. Therefore, in an effort to invoke the pagan world in a non-materialistic, non-historical and non-cultural terms I refuse to pass judgment on to condemn the Romans of that time. I refuse to think, gosh, they used to kill 6,000 people at one time. What scoundrels? No, because then my film would be all wrong. So I really appreciate that he's trying to get past this because personally, I don't really feel like there is judgment being passed on these characters. Like you guys said, there are times where it's like, you know, they're just doing their thing and it doesn't feel like we are sitting in judgment of them. At least this audience in 2014, looking at these guys, even with like it or not, I can be as atheistic as I want, but I live in a Christian Judeo Christian world. So I'm definitely tainted by that. Well, there's a difference between an audience bringing a judgment and a filmmaker bringing a judgment within the work. And I don't believe that Fellini is bringing a judgment within the work on any of this stuff. I think if anything, when it came out, there may have been people that go, oh, that's horrible. How dare you make a movie like that? Um, I I think he just lets his characters play. That's what they are. That's how they are. And that's the way they are. So be it. Well, and it all comes out of Fellini. I mean, this is very little Petronius in, in this film. It's Fellini filling in the gaps of the fragments. I think he only uses two or three parts of the the fragments that are left of Satyricon. Um, And then he fills it. He and his his uh, co-screenwriter filled it in with other stories from other literature of the time. But uh, a lot of it came out of his dream journals because he kept these very intricate dream journals um, where he would just write down all of his dreams. And when he was in a project, he was usually dreaming about it somehow. So that's why – I mean that, that's why things are so Fellini-esque. It's all coming out of his brain, and thank God he had such amazing uh, collaborators like um, Donati who did the uh, the costumes, the same guy that did the costumes for Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet in the same year. He won an Oscar that year for that, but he would also did all the stuff for uh, Satyricon. 
and his you know set designers and builders and just incredible people who were in the same wavelength as Fellini because I can imagine if you don't get the right people, he could just talk gibberish and nobody would say, I don't know, what you what do you want? You want what on the screen? I don't get it. It's Fellini. It's definitely Fellini Satyricon, and there's not a lot of Petronius in here. Yeah, going back and reading a little bit about Satyricon, it feels like, yeah, he was just kind of cherry-picking little ideas here and there. And it seems like the banquet, the Tramalchio's dinner thing, it seems like that's... Yeah, that's a big part of the, right, what's left, yeah. Right. It seems like that's a big part of the movie, that's a big part of what's left of Petronius. But then other stuff, it's just like, where did this necessarily come from? And I don't necessarily see it in the Petronius. So I was glad that he was able to just kind of take that and the order of it and everything is just kind of all over the place. And it just moves to its own beat, man. It's just doing its thing. And there's certain things in here that I would say um, go back to earlier films and specifically the question. I mean, specifically the question of the artist. And when you look at a film like Eight and a Half, uh, it's really about the artist and how the artist struggles to to do the work. And in here, there's at least two or three sections, and especially when we meet um, – there's this beautiful scene in sort of this gallery where they're, they're walking through and he's talking oh, yes. to the artist, the poet, and, and there's all these sculptures and various things. It's, it's very well staged. And he's talking about sort of like you know what is art and what's poetry and all of this. And then the banquet, as you talked about, there's this whole thing where the, the head of the banquet's like, I want to be a poet too. And the poet's like, you can't be a poet because you're rich and you can't suffer and you need to suffer to be an artist, to be a poet. And then when the poet dies in the film, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter because poetry in the world will continue on. It doesn't really matter what I me specifically, but just the idea of the creation, the idea of the art will, will continue. So there's this continuum idea of art and the, the question of the value of the artist versus the output. And I thought that was kind of an interesting philosophical throughout it. But also look at the, the poet who... You know, uh, he, Fellini makes fun of of poets and writers in this film quite a bit, um, and is and in most of his other films. You know, he's got this funny sort of like I'm an artist, but at the same time, I don't think he trusts artists very much because they can be so easily pretentious and obnoxious. So, for example, in Chiricon, we have the poet who is invited to Tremolchio's feast. And Tremolchio thinks he's, you know, a poet himself. So he recites some lines, and the poet goes, "You stole that from another poet. You know, that's not you. That's another poet." And they drag him out, and they're going to throw him in the fire for insulting the host. But then, when the poet shows up again, he's rich. He's become rich. He's got. He's on a leader. You know, or he's being carried. You know, on his bed, and he invites the boys along. It's like, come on, let's go. Um, and uh, and when he dies. He's the one that's left all the money, and people have to devour him. His, um, if they want the money, they have to eat his body before they get the money. So that's the poet that was so you know dismissive of the rich guy until he got rich. And now it's, oh, okay, well, I'm a rich poet now. I was a cockroach, now I'm a king. That's life. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, Fellini is a very weird, um, he doesn't really like poets. I mean, in La Dolce Vita, for example, Steiner who is the intellectual, the uh, the man who is cultured and you know seems to have the most perfect life, is the man who kills himself and his two children because he just can't deal with it anymore. So uh, Fellini doesn't, I mean, he's very skeptical about artists, particularly um, people who have any pretension of art. It's funny because he's, you know, the, the ultimate artist in many ways. Well, as you've noticed so far in the show, we're talking more about the ideas than the plot, and I think yeah. part of the reason why we're not talking about the plot. There is no plot. plot. 
<laughs> yeah. So it's it's a bunch of scenes that bring up philosophical ideas. As a matter of fact, kind of talking about the one thing that could be a, a commonality, and I think this is I – mean, I brought it up a little bit on uh, Caligula, but the one thing that I think is the commonality, and it must be sort of this thing that's sort of built into the psyche of, of Italian artists, writers, filmmakers, whatever, whether they know it or not, is the, the structure in some way – I'm going to reference Dante again, just the idea that we're being you know led through by this person into this world into this place and under, you know sort of coming to understand all these various people that we meet along the way but there's no real through line except for that one person and their goal structurally if you want to talk about a plot that's it you know like mike you said earlier it's just the main main character that's who we're following and we're seeing things basically as he sees things I want to go back a little bit to the language thing because I did pick up, uh, Jim, you were talking about the the critics who were pointing out, oh, my God, the dubbing in this thing is terrible. They, they just yeah. – <laughs> It's like, it's like, yeah, that that's kind of the point. But one of the things that got me was the use of language in the film, and I like that – well, first off, I, I – had read that Fellini was thinking about doing it all in Latin and also not subtitling it, right. which I found kind of interesting. But then there are sections of the film that are completely without subtitles, and I just kept thinking, am I supposed to be knowing what they're saying, no, you're or not. am I in the character's position? Yeah. And yeah, as the movie went along, I finally realized, okay, I'm in the character's position. I'm not supposed to know what these people are saying. Because if you think about it, uh, you know, well, he isn't being historically accurate. I mean, I think we need to get that out of our head right now. Yes, it's supposed to be set in the time of Nero, but he wants absolutely no historical basis for this film. It is his own creation of Rome in a timeless place. He, he talked about it as being like Martians. It's like, it's like you're looking at Martians. You have no idea why the Martians are doing what they're doing or anything. And so it was a very poly – he wanted a very polyglot sort of atmosphere – where the people were speaking Latin, you hear some things that sound almost German sometimes. Um, so there is a, a bunch of different languages going on. And even the Latin, he didn't want it to sound like like Latin you would learn in school. He wanted it to be, I think they said it was it's closer to Serbo-Croatian, the way he wanted it declaimed. So that it had a rough, you know, almost not, not at all Latin sort of sound to it. So it's fascinating. Yeah, there's big sw- chunks of the film that aren't subtitled. And I'm wondering if they would – if somebody comes along and redoes the subtitles, if they'd actually add subtitles. I hope not because I think I like it better when I, I know there's stuff going on that I can't figure out. You know, it's interesting. I have the screenplay that Fellini wrote, and it's a bit different. There's a lot of things explained in the screenplay that are completely cut out of the film. So it's almost as if he came along and he had more of a plot but decided he had to get rid of that. Yeah, there were certain things that came out in the other Satyricon where I'm like, oh, okay, because there are so many – the other Satyricon, which I know we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, it's very much the same vignettes but in a different order. But some of them have a little bit more explanation to them, such as you mentioned the scene about the uh, the suicides. And I'm like, I have no idea why these people are killing themselves in this Fellini film. What is going on? And then in the other Satyricon, it's like, oh, this guy was implicated in this plot against Nero. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because, yeah, even though this is set during that time, they – 
I don't even think they mention Nero, and I could be wrong, no, but I don't, don't think they mention Nero in Fellini's Satyricon. It's just like, you're right, it's this timeless, this is a place, this is a time almost out of time, and these people are doing what they are doing, and we are just there as observers. We are the anthropologists kind of looking at this. He, they do talk about Caesars. You know, there is the Caesar that is killed. Um, you see him being killed by uh, soldiers on the island. And then they come to Lycus on the boat and say, you know, we have a new Caesar now. And then the, the Villa of the Suicides comes after that. So I think the master of the house does say at one point, you know, there's this a purge going on. And I sort of connected it with the death of Caesar and a new Caesar coming. But it's very vague. But there's definitely more of that in the screenplay. So it was a very conscious thing for him to to make it more like the fragmented uh, literary work, even though it isn't necessarily the same order of things or the same stories, he wanted the the holes to be there so that you got the same feeling as when you read the Satyricon. Yeah, we talked about the way that this movie flows and that it kind of has its own logic and everything. I think my favorite instance of that is after Tremelchio's dinner party. The poet has been kicked out because you know he did dare to call the his host a plagiarist um, with, with his poems and everything, and it's it's him and and Colpio, and they're laying in this field, this field which seems to go on forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, these sets are just absolutely gorgeous. It just seems to go on forever, and they fall asleep in this field. Next thing you know, they're being woken up in chains and being led to this boat, and it's just like. Okay, we have no idea how suddenly they're in chains, but it's great. You know, it, it's it works perfectly in this this the logic of the film. It's like okay, now we're off to our next adventure, and off they go on these in this boat. And again, the design on the boat is absolutely gorgeous. Just you know the the way that the oars are shot and everything, and the framing of it, and it's just like okay, you know, like to go from one scene to another just like that, and you know, no questions asked. This is just the way that the story is working and you know if you're not into it man you're you're probably going to get kind of pissed off i know pauline kale was not into it she wrote the scathing (laughs) review of the film a lot of critics did yeah but i was right there i was just like okay i'm here for the ride take me along with you guys you know it's funny also from the visual aspect and this has more to do with the characters and how they look is that to me they look like they came out of the traditional hollywood you know, big epics of the 50s in terms of the makeup, hair, things like that. But it's almost like he's satirizing the big Roman epics of the past in a way. Well, yeah, I don't know how much it is satire. He's, there's a quote from him because the, the original Satyricon is a satire. It's a completely, it's a very nasty satire about Roman um, life at the time. But Fellini said, I can't do this as satire because it would be like satirizing – he keeps bringing up Martians for some reason. It would be like satirizing Martians. We, we can't satirize Martians. We know anything about them. I would argue, Rob, that I don't think it looks anything like um, the other epics. It, it's just got this weird look to it that – I mean you've got the big hair and the, the gaudy things, but there's just a – it goes to a different level altogether. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't find that. I didn't see that at all. I just thought it mostly with the lead character because he looks a little too clean oh, yeah. and, and nice. You know, he looks like the uh, the hero that we get in like Ben Hur or Spartacus or something. It's I would like agree he's with that. dirty. Yeah. He's dirty, but he's a clean dirty. You know what I mean? Yeah. Apparently, he picked Martin Potter because first he looked he was gorgeous, 
And second, he said there was something in his eyes that you knew he, he could break the law and do really bad things. And that women were attracted to him because of that. That's what Fellini said. You know, Fellini would look at somebody and come up with a whole story around them. And that's why he picked uh, Hiram Potter or Hiram Keller because Keller just looked mean all the time. He had this sneer. But I agree. It's You get the curly, you know, the curly Roman hair a lot and people with uh, garlands in their hair and things like that. There, There is some of that. But, I mean, look at the, the, the sets and the boats, which are completely unrealistic. Those boats would capsize in a second if they were actually out in a sea. And a lot of Roman professors and people who understood what's known about ancient Rome were just horrified by this. They said, well, this is, Rome doesn't look anything like this. There's, you know, these boats don't work and this doesn't it. And Fellini had done a lot of research, but threw it all out because he said, I don't want it to look anything like anybody thinks Rome would look like. I was reminded of Dr. Seuss while I was watching this movie. There are a couple times where there are instruments like at, you know, the party scene and later on there's a montage where there are some instruments coming by and I'm just like, yeah, this is, uh, this totally looks like it's something happening down in Whoville. And really, that's there's so much of it where I was just like, yeah, okay. I, I the, the, You know, it's like weird instruments, like on the deck of the boat, there's, you know, just the way that the anchor is designed and there's like this thing next to it where I'm like, I'm not really sure what the purpose of that is, but yeah, it sure it looks, does look cool. It looks like an antenna or, a, you know, like a big uh, radio antenna or something. It's just bizarre stuff like that. Yeah, it's fascinating. I just love it. One of the things that got me, too, was the framing of the film. There are a lot of times where it was especially noticeable because of the subtitles and where the subtitles are placed. But there are so many times in the film where the characters are being dwarfed by everything else that's around them. And you've got just like the little head of the character in the lower left-hand corner and everything else is around it so of co- unfortunately the subtitles are right over their faces but it was just like wow what what are you doing with this framing but i you know i appreciated it while i was watching it well yeah he you know he hadn't been doing widescreen for that many films his first widescreen film was la dolce vita and and that was like a super widescreen and for i think eight and a half is regular you know 1661 or something like that Julia the Spirits is widescreen, but that was it. So he was still, I mean, I think he took to widescreen really well. He composes shots that are just astounding. And those sets that go on forever, and very few special effects, those sets were built that way. And the, especially during the earthquake scene, that, I mean, that set is, I don't know, seven, eight stories high? Yeah, just amazing stuff. You know, Rob, I actually thought about one of your favorite filmmakers while I was watching this film. I was reminded a lot of the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie while I was watching this. How so? The story of the woman whose husband died, and there was the centurion who was watching over the hanged man. That story, for some reason, totally reminded me of one of those stories within a story within a story inside of Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. And I don't think that it was just that we're breaking out of our main narrative to have this other story inside of it. Just something about the way that it was shot, something about the color and everything. Especially, it was just so bizarre. Like, we've got the woman who's crying over her dead husband, and then we've got the centurion who's out by the hanged man. And the way that he kind of cocks his head and puts his hand up to his ear, like, what is that that I hear? It's the, the sounds of a woman in distress. I must go to her. It was just such a strange juxtaposition of these two. It was 
was like, okay. And then, you know, how easily they, they kind of fall into bed with each other. I was like, all right. And yeah, I don't know if it was the color or what it was, but I was really reminded of Discreet Charm. I would say that Fellini in here, you know, is getting into the surrealist territory. But uh, the the one thing that people always put on Bonuel was that he didn't have a, he didn't have a style. That his stuff was too, you know, realistic. And then there was flourishes, or things would be disjointed. But uh, you know, I I don't think that we would get a a, a set design anything like this for a Bonuel film. <laughs> but I could oh, see yeah, what you're true. talking about with yeah. uh, the the Centurion story is maybe being something like the Dead Lieutenant where they all get arrested and they end up and it's like, oh, it's Dead Lieutenant's Day. You better watch out. The ghost of the Dead Lieutenant comes back and seeks his revenge. <laughs> They're all locked up in the in the, in the the uh, in the police precinct there. So, yeah, I, I could sort of see a, a similarity there. And, yeah, I guess it was just also that dream logic and everything. I mean, I know when we talk about Juliet of the Spirits, we'll be talking about David Lynch quite a bit. Uh, but with this one, yeah, I was reminded of Bunuel, especially just the way that scenes kind of end and then another begins without really any sort of transition between the two, like the the scene that I'd mentioned before, where it was just like, this makes total sense because the movie says it makes sense. And here we are off to this. I mean, it's kind of like that stage play that I talked about at the beginning of the film where it's just like, you know, is the audience even here? Are they watching it? They're interacting with the actors on stage, but, and just that cutting off of the guy's hand and he's got the new golden hand and all this stuff. It's just, it all works in this film's kind of schema. And like I said, I was there for the ride with this. I knew that it necessarily wasn't going to add up to a whole lot, but I sure was having a nice time. Well, I think that's really one of the great things that you know that you're working or you're watching a film and engaging with a film by a, a, a true craftsman, a true artist, because they can give you all of this stuff and bring you into the logic, if there is a logic quote-unquote, I'll put that in air quotes, of what they're trying to present. So instead of having you come in, this isn't another Marvel superhero movie, this is Fellini, and he's going to he's going to basically set the rules for you within the first few minutes and say, this is the universe that I have for you, this is the logic we're working with, go with me on it. And you either go with it and you think it's great, or you go with it and you don't like it and it doesn't make any sense for you because it's too odd. And uh, then I guess you're Pauline Kale. This is not the new De Palma film, Pauline. Right. You're not going to like it. Yeah, Sorry. It's, it's not Nashville. You know, chill out, Pauline. It's funny. Well, Rex Reed loved the movie when it came out. And that, of course, makes perfect sense because Rex Reed, anything that uh, – no, I wouldn't even say anything bad about Rex Reed. We like Rex Reed. He actually wrote us and said that he liked our um, Myra Breckenridge episode, although he wouldn't be on it. Well, and can you blame him? I mean, the, he was a little, it was kind of embarrassing to watch him in that movie. But um, no, but I mean, Rex Reed, it's funny because when you read stuff from around that time when he was writing, he hated anything that, that didn't make sense. He called Solaris one of the worst films he's ever seen, you know, fake 2001 that made no sense and all this stuff. But Satyricon he loved, and I think primarily because it was so gay. And you know it was so not of its time. This was not what you'd expect. And so he sort of went, said, oh, I don't mind all the craziness. You know, this is actually great for me. I like this. It's funny. Critics, I think you're absolutely right. It's like you either love it or you don't love it. But there's not a whole lot in between with this film. Which is what I ask for from my art. 
Yeah. I, don't, I mean, things that are in the middle are not interesting. I, I, John Waters said years ago, I want violent reactions to art. I want people to love it or hate it. I don't want people to go, eh, it was all right. Yeah. This movie's so gay that Richard Simmons is in it. I know. I was so freaked out to find that out. And then, I, of course, I was watching it again this morning, and I saw him this because I'd seen the, the um, screenshot of him. And there he is, sitting there strumming his lyre and looking dirty and really overweight. He looked like Pagliacci from Shock Corridor, you know? <laughs> Just <laughs> that kind of ragged beard and everything and strumming his little lyre there. I was like, wow, pretty soon you're going to be sweating to the oldies, buddy. I know. And, you know, I was skeptical that that was really him. But I've talked to a bunch of people and they said, oh, no, I heard that. That's right. He, he's actually said it was him. So I don't know what it's going to take to verify it, but um, I'll believe it. I, mean, I think that's a... Because Fellini would cast anybody who drifted through Rome at the time if he liked their face. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with John Baxter, the author of Fellini, a biography about the filmmaker, after these important messages. Trick or Treat Radio is a phantasmagorical spin kick straight through the heart of pop culture, navigated by the Deadites. We are the world's greatest electroshock band, we destroy monsters, we drink booze, and we win championship belts. If you're not listening to Trick or Treat Radio, here's a taste of what you've been missing. There's three guarantees in life. What are they? Death, taxes, and trick-or-treat radio every Friday. This is one of the most convoluted movies I've ever seen in my life. I'm trying, man. Hi, hi, hi. Oh, yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, yeah. It's like you took a shit on a pile of But you shit on him right. for liking what he likes. Yeah, well, it's my job. This podcast is now banned in Germany. <laughs> it's me, Giovanni Lombardo Radici. Shut up. I call bullshit. I demand someone to bring me the face of Lindsay Lohan. If I had genitals, I would definitely bang her. Oh, wait. Is she a great big fan person? You just hit the jackpot. This is a weird movie, huh? It had action. It had suspense. It had great characters. It had great acting. I'm going to strangle you with my jockey short. I don't like mobster movies. All right, well, here's my take. You're a sick f- Thank you. Now shut the f- have you ever seen 2001? The okay. box, right? The box and the monkey. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and TrickOrTreatRadio.com. Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com. Yes, get 50% off when you use the coupon code BOOTH at checkout, as in John Wilkes, Powers, or the Projection Booth. But that's not all. You'll also receive three free adult DVDs and free shipping on your entire order. Too good to be true? It's not. Check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. Once again, that coupon code is B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Are you looking for a podcast that breaks movies down like you couldn't believe? I mean, takes them apart piece by piece and analyzes every little thing. Getting you the most out of every movie that you ever could. Well, look no further than The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. With Samurai and Big Willie. These fuckers know how to review movies. Or my name ain't the head. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. Get off my back! I love the smell of night come in the morning. 
how did you get interested in Fellini? Well, I, I moved to France in 1989 from Los Angeles um, and pretty well removed all possibility of employment because I didn't speak French. And uh, also um, a lot of what I've been doing in L.A., which was screenwriting and film journalism, I couldn't do in France. So, so my wife and I uh, sat down after I'd been here about three months and we sort of discussed the options and uh, we came up with the idea that perhaps I should go back to writing uh, books about cinema, which I hadn't done for like 10, 15 years. Uh, I'd been writing general fiction and so on. So um, I just read a rather good biography of Visconti uh, by um, a woman named... uh, I think I get it right, Lawrence Skiffer. No, she's um, uh, a, f- a friend. Hold on, my wife will correct me. That's right. Yes, my wife corrects me. It is Skiffer now. Anyway, she lives in Paris, as it turned out. And, and I like the approach. I like the, the, the fact that it dealt with Fellini not just from the point of view of his films, but, but as a man, uh, you know, what were the other things he did, his politics, his, his family background and so on, his work in opera and all that. And, and I thought that's the trouble with film books. They tend, you know, to concentrate just on the cinema career. Uh, and so my wife said, well, you could write a book like that about somebody else. Uh, yes, who? Uh, well, you know, we talked about a few people. Antonioni came to mind. Bergman is often suggested. Um, I, I didn't, that neither quite worked for me. And then um, we came up with Fellini. And um, uh, I said, well, yes, there is no other book about Fellini except for, for one biography in, in, um, in English, which was not terribly detailed. And, and she said, well, where was Fellini born? And it was one of the few things I knew about him. And I said, oh, he's born in Rimini, near south of Venice. And she said, well, the first thing would be to, to go to Rimini. And I said, yeah, that's right. And she sort of looked at her watch. And I said, what do you mean now? And she said, yes, why not? You know. And, of course, I was thinking in terms of America, you know, where you just didn't get up and go to Texas or something like that. But, of course, this is Europe. You can drive. So we got in the car and we drove across France, went through um, Mont Blanc that evening, stayed in Courchevel that, that, that night, and next afternoon we were in Rimini. Uh, uh, Rimini in February, I have to tell you, is a pretty depressing place. It's a, it's it's a resort, and of course it shuts down in um, in the winter. But but you know, everywhere you looked, uh, you could see you know things that were reminiscent of Fellini. You could see that even though he hadn't shot there very much, he'd recreated Rimini uh, back in, in Cinecittà, for instance, for Amarcord. You know, streets, buildings, all recreated. Um, in Rome. So um, we were walking around and um, I was snapping pictures everywhere and I ran out of film. So we went into a little um, uh, camera shop run by an old guy and it was a, with a little boy of about 10, 8 or 10. And, and Mary Dominic, who speaks Italian, and asked the guy where, where, whether he knew where Fellini had been born because the, we couldn't find the, the, uh, the street address. And he said, oh, it was all bombed in the war because this was a big railway terminus and the Americans bombed it very heavily, so a lot was destroyed. And then he said, I know someone who would know. And he he said to the little boy, mind the shop. And he led us around the corner to a little 
block of apartments and rang the bell and a woman stuck her head out of one of the windows and he explained, oh, there's these people here uh, from Australia who wanted to know about Fefe. They all, all call Fellini Fefe. And she said, don't they, don't they know in Australia that, that women have to do their vacuuming, uh, their housekeeping in the morning? Ask them to come back this afternoon. So the, she closed the window and the guy said, this is Fellini's sister. Uh, her name is, um, uh, was Anna, Anna Madalena Fabri. Fellini Fabri. She'd married a, a, a local guy and stayed in Rimini. So we went, um, we went that afternoon with a bunch of flowers, and she, she was extraordinary. You know, she said, why, why would you want to write a, a book about, uh, about Fefe? He's a pain in the ass, really. I mean, you know, I have little to do with him as I can. I, I talk to Julieta. He's, he just, he's maddening, you know. And, and she said, I, I can't really uh, tell you a lot of things. But, but, but there was this one case, you know, and she, out came all this family gossip. Uh, about the problems that she'd had uh, with with her brother, um, and it was complicated by the fact that she had um, just done a film. She she was an actress in a small way, and she'd been in a film directed by one of Fellini's screenwriters, whose name uh, you can look up, uh, um, and. Um, she showed us a, a tape, a cassette of a, of a talk show she'd been on in Rome where the guests were all people who were relatives of, of better-known people. And, and uh, one, the presenter said to her, tell me, has your better-known brother seen the film that you're in? And she said, well, I, I, I don't know. And they said, oh, well, now we're going to find out because we have, a, we have a call into the office of Maestro Fellini right now. We're going to ask him. And on air, they asked Fellini uh, whether he'd seen the film. And he has this very distinctive, almost feminine voice. And he said, oh, no, you know, I, 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 I want to see it, but, but I went past the cinema and unfortunately the times were not good. And then the next time I went by, it wasn't on anymore. So I'm looking around and Madalena said, Fefe, I sent you a cassette. Ah, ah, yes, you did. That's true, you did. Now I'm going to sit down tonight and I'm going to look at this. And you knew very well he was never, nothing would make him look at his sister's film. He was so competitive. Anyway, at the end of the conversation, she said, look, here's his home phone number in, in, in Rome. You know, you can ring him up. So we came out uh, into the icy cold Rimini, and I thought, yeah, we could we could go straight on to Rome now. But what would I ask him? You know, I, I, I was only just getting my head around the idea of writing about Fellini. I just didn't know enough. So we went back to Paris, and, and I spent a year doing interviews with uh, all the people uh, that uh, I, I could find who'd worked with him. I uh, went over to London, talked talk to some people there. And, and after a year, I pretty well got a handle on him. So I went to, uh, to Rome and I knew, like, like, uh, my, like myself, uh, he gets up very early. Uh, so uh, I rang him at 8 a.m. and uh, the phone rang and rang. And then it was answered by a little old lady. She said, pronto. And I thought, oh, I've got the wrong number, you know. And I said, oh, I, I was look, looking for Maestro Fellini. And I said it in English. I, um, uh, I could have said it in French probably, but I was taken aback, so I said it in English. But she replied in English. She said, uh, 
who wants to know? And I said, oh, we, Maestro wouldn't know me, but I'm writing a book about him, and I, I bring greetings from Alain Cuny and Dominique Delouche, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's more mental. And then Fellini came on. Oh, I would be so kind, Urena. It's difficult for me. I'm sick. I go, I go into hospital. Also, I, I start a new film. Uh, this was Voices of the Moon. He was just working on. Um, uh, also, I, I have my holidays. Every excuse you could imagine. So I thought, oh, well, maybe it's not going to happen. Anyway, I'd set up some other interviews while I was there, including one with Gerald Mora, who was his ex-secretary, a, a former Jesuit. It, it, really, it really chuffed uh, Fellini to have a, um, a Jesuit as a secretary. So anyway, Moran lived way up in the hills, so I went up and talked to him. And, and I said, I, when I, I rang him this morning, and I, I got this little old lady. Uh, who's that? Not his secretary, I know, not Julietta. And Moran said, no, he says, it's him. <laughs> if you ring him when there's nobody there... He puts on the character of a little old lady. And uh, if you say to him, oh, Fefe, forget it, it's me, I know your trick. He gets very annoyed. You have to say, may I speak to Maestro Fellini, please? And then he sort of changes hats and then you can talk to him, you know, as Fellini. So just by chance, I'd, I'd, uh, you know, I'd I'd said, done the right thing. So um, uh, at the end, after this rather long interview I did with with Morin, uh, we finished just before lunchtime, and uh, up, uh, he lives up in the hills. There was no nothing up there really, except a big Hilton hotel. So I went over to the hotel and asked the concierge if he could recommend uh, any place to eat. And he said, "Oh, there's nowhere around here." And he said, "Look, and, and frankly, I wouldn't eat here in the hotel if I were you." He said, "You should go back down towards Rome. There's an area called Prati." sort of halfway between where we were in the centre of Rome, um, where there were some good restaurants, and he wrote out a few names. So I went out and got a cab and showed the list to the cab driver. The first one was called um, uh, Da Bruni, and uh, we drove for about 15 minutes and we stopped, and the guy explained that uh, he'd forgotten that the, the street where... We, we we were the restaurant was like five or six blocks away, but it was a one way street and he couldn't drive up there. Uh, I said, well, let me out here because it was a beautiful day, sun shining and and a lot of place. You know, it's just Rome restaurants everywhere. People that were putting out their uh, chairs and tables on the sidewalk, putting up the uh, uh, umbrellas and so on. But I thought, well, this place. Bruni, recommended by the concierge. I suppose he knows his business. So I walked the six blocks. I arrived at this quite small, unassuming little restaurant. Went in. There were there were only two other tables occupied, and at one of them was Fellini. And I really thought, oh, I've been doing this too long. Everyone is starting to look like Fellini. But but I stared and I thought, my God, it really is him. Uh, you know, he was wearing that um, that tweed. Uh, Sort of hat, Irish hat that he wore, and and the scarf over his shoulders, and the and the car coat. It was just absolutely as he as he used to caricature himself. And then when he got up and went went to the men's room, he had he had a very odd elephantine kind of a, a shuffle because he had weak ankles uh, from this endocrine problem he had, and so it was very distinctive. And I sort of leapt on him, 
And I said, I, 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 you know, I, I talked to you this morning, and and I, I just up with Cyril Moran, and he, you know, and 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 uh, you know, <laughs> I, I must have sounded incoherent. But but he looked at me, and said, Oh, you're the guy ringing this morning, and you're writing a book about me. I said, Yes, yes, that's right. There. And he said, oh, well, uh, we should get together. Yeah, I said, oh, yes, absolutely. He said, well, every, every morning I have my breakfast. And, yeah, I said, I oh, know, Cafe Canova, Piazza de Popoli. Yeah, I know. He said, well, let's uh, tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, would that be good? Actually, I think it was 10 o'clock. It doesn't rise all that early. Um, and um, uh, so I met him there the next day, and he was wonderful. Uh, what can I do? Who can I introduce you to? You must look, must talk to my secretary. She has all my secrets. You know, let me give you a note to this person and that person. And and I was astonished because you know, I mean, he didn't know me, even though I, I'd, I'd had in a way a sort of letter of recommendation from, from the people I'd already talked to. But of course, it dawned on me after a while that he had gone through um, Jungian analysis. And Jung, of course, did not believe in coincidence. He wrote this essay called On Synchronicity, where he, he said that, that uh, you know, there's no such thing as, a, as coincidence, that there was a sort of pattern to, to human behavior, human existence, which we didn't necessarily sense, but which would bring, bring people together when they had a, a coincidence of interest. And, and, and to Fellini... The fact that we had run into one another in this obscure restaurant coming from opposite sides of the world was the best recommendation that there could possibly be. Uh, and uh, that uh, after that, you know, he, all doors were opened. And um, I said to him when I finished the book, you know, do you want to read it? And he said, no, no, I trust you. I'm sure it's, it's right. Uh, and, of course, he died not long after. In fact, he died just about the time the book came out in England. So um, I'm glad I was able to, um, you know, to work with him on it. And uh, I think it gives the book a, a, a very distinctive flavor, which uh, makes me very proud of it. So I, I, told you, I told you it was a long story. I love the little coincidences and various things that all kind of came together to make it happen. And I was going to ask, you know, how long did it take you to put together and what were the challenges if you had all of these, you know, great things fall in line? Uh, well, the challenge, of course, is it was first of all to get the movies because um, now, of course, they're much more readily available. But but there were some of the early ones. I remember uh, White Sheik was not easy to find a uh, good copy anyway. Um, and 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 there were a number of um, of TV things he did, uh, uh, Writer's Notebook and things like a uh, uh, Roman Notebook. Uh, and uh, InterVista and so on, which were, were, many were not available uh, with English titles or French titles. So that was difficult. And then I ha also had to hunt down some people th that um, I knew knew him but were a bit more elusive. Um, there was a guy called Dominique Deluche um, who became one of these. Fellini liked to have a, a handsome young man as a kind of... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of cupbearer, I think, you know, uh, somebody to be an acolyte, to be with him. Pasolini served this role for a while. Um, and uh, Deluche was, was French and, and had been, had, had performed this function on a number of the early movies, on Il Bidone, for instance. Uh, and he was quite elusive, but in the end I was able to talk to him. Um, and then, of course, I had to go back to Rome to to go through Cinicita 
uh, I must say the people were wonderful there. Once you're, you're inside Chinichita, you're, um, uh, you know, you're part of a club. And, and they were delighted that someone was doing a film about Fellini. And they, they were a great help and showed me a lot of, uh, of tremendous uh, things. So, so it was uh, uh, Fellini opened the door, but I still had to, uh, to go in and explore. And, and since Fellini is such a terrible liar uh, and was proud of the fact, a lot of what he told me and a lot of what people told me had to be double-checked. Uh, even the simplest thing is the, the house where he was born, you know, took, took, took weeks of establishing. So you got to know him, I would think, very well while you were writing this book about him. What were your times like with him? They were extraordinary. They were usually sitting down at the Café Canava or one of the other uh, cafes. He, he tended to, to do all his business in, in cafes. Um, and um, uh, get, I remember once we were sitting there and, and I was saying to him, um, this business of where you were born, you know, you've told 20 different stories. You know, you, you say you were born on a, on, a, on a train, you were born during a thunderstorm, you, you, you were born here, you were born there. Uh, and, 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 and what's the truth? And he said, oh, Caro John, he said, dear John, Caro John, uh, I don't know. And just at that moment, he looked up and uh, Cafe Pazza um, de Popoli, there's the enormous church there. And out from behind one of the pinnacles of the church came a, a, an airliner, which was climbing uh, out of the airport, heading away. And had, you could see the, the contrail behind it. And he said, um, Perhaps, perhaps I was born in a plane, <laughs> and and you, I knew I could see something happening to me that, um, that that happened to a lot of other people that they were they were lured into his dream, into his fantasy, um, and he was so persuasive that it was very easy to to fall in to 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 kind of sharing sharing that fantasy, and of course for a biographer that's fatal. Uh, you have to maintain some kind of objectivity. So I, I, I could be quite short with him sometimes. I say, no, no, come on. You, you, already, you already told Gideon Barkman that lie, and we all know that's not true. And he says, oh, yes, I know, I know. All right, okay, the real truth is so-and-so. But even that you couldn't always depend on. Um, so I had to, I had to double-check a lot of stuff. Fortunately, there was, the, um, there was a very good, if rather boring, um, Italian biography uh, which he'd approved, which was filled with, with facts, though uh, heavy going, I'm afraid, to, to, to read. Um, but I was able sometimes to, uh, to check uh, things with, with, uh, with that. But it wasn't easy. He's certainly one of the most difficult persons to, to write about. You know, it's that willingness to want to bring people along on these stories that I think probably made him such a great filmmaker. And his career is so fascinating because, you know, he starts out in the post-war neorealist films that were coming out of Italy. And then by the end of his career, his name just becomes synonymous with like bizarre imagery in most people's minds and things like that. So how do you sort of see his development as a filmmaker and sort of that trajectory of his career? Well, you're quite right. He he was at uh, the beginning associated with with neorealism and in particular with Rossellini. But before that, he was a cartoonist. Uh, that's how he first made his name. He was a he was a caricaturist and cartoonist and street artist and worked for the for the um, comic strips 
during the war. So when he fell in with Rossellini and became uh, a filmmaker, he already had a, a fairly wide experience of, uh, of parody, of humour. Uh, in fact, he, 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 uh, that's how he first met Giulietta. Um, he did a radio program based on a, a comic strip that he had uh, drawn, and she was the actress who played his girlfriend. So uh, it was it was it really what it was in that sort of thing rather than in uh, the um, realism that he uh, that he, he first sort of uh, uh, got his chops. So when he went with Rossellini, he was already, you know, has a foot in both camps, which was why he never got on with Zavattini. Zavattini was the great ideologue of, uh, of neorealism, and he didn't approve of, uh, of Fellini at all. And his, his, his relationship with Rossellini was at least partly, I won't say sexual, it was, it was emotional. Um, he was inclined to, to as I said, he, he wanted he, he, because of his sexual ambivalence. He was he he had mainly male friends, and and he did become sort of fixated on them. He was very possessive, and so the relationship with Rossellini was was, was very much a personal one, and then an artistic one. And uh, he he only stuck with neorealism for for two or three films before uh, he began to move out with with uh, uh, variety uh, lights and and then to uh, to the white cheek and that, those are much more characteristic of, of him. So he was he was only ever a kind of cadet member of neorealism, I think. Satyricon comes on at the end of the '60s and was just wondering how did that develop. Uh, Satyricon. Well, a lot of these ideas came from De Laurentiis. De Laurentiis liked the idea of using classical uh, texts because they were free. Uh, Casanova was his idea, um, and and uh, Satyricon uh, is is part of the same uh, idea that if you if you use something that's in that's out of uh, copyright, then you don't have to go through all of. The, the problems of, of clearing rights, and at the same time, it's it's well known, it's famous. There have been a lot of Satyricon movies. In fact, there was another one made at the same time as as his film. Um, what attracted uh, Fellini to the Satyricon, oddly enough, was the hippie movement. Um, he went to uh, New York to receive, I guess it was his Oscar for Eight and a Half, and he hung out at, at a, a club. Uh, no, 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 I suppose it's a club. It must have been a, a, a place, you know, kind of more than a club. I mean, like a huge warehouse where where people danced and sang, and there was dope and music and everything. And and, and he loved the bisexual element of hippiedom. Uh, he, he said, in fact, if you remember Roma, in that wonderful Alghiero Noscese commentary, Noscese's reading of, of Fellini's commentaries is, is just one of the great masterworks, I think, uh, masterly elements of his film. He, 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 he these these hippies on the Spanish steps, and he said, you know, they're, they're like puppies. They, they have sex or they don't have sex. They play. It just doesn't matter. And that he loved that he loved that idea of a of a of a, 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 a unisexual universe, and that's what he, uh, he explores in Satyricon. He has these these two young 
men who are who are presumably lovers, they're bisexual lovers, and then they bring up the young Giton who becomes their kind of toy boy. But but then they also have sex with girls and and so on. And and um, the the film explores that whole idea of uh, of, um, of as I say of uh, of a unisexual world, a world where sexual differentiation hasn't really uh, been. Established, and of course, the Alan Cuny character of the the uh, cross-dressing uh, uh, pimp who marries the the boy, and so on, um, and that's the hermaphrodite boy. I mean, it's filled with filled with with elements of of bisexuality, which come directly from his encounter with the hippies. Which I thought was pretty interesting, given the era in which it came out. Although I'm coming to understand, and I haven't read it that. Satyricon comes out of an episodic a piece, a famous episodic piece in um, Roman literature, and that was just part of what the story was. That it just happened that he found, I guess, this cultural touchstone at the same time that he could kind of relate to. Yeah, in fact, the Satyricon is fragments, really. Uh, the, the Satyricon of Petronius Arbiter, uh, they're, they're remains of what was originally quite a long uh, text, which, which very much in the, in the style of the period was, was stories, fables, uh, descriptions, and so on. The, the, the ones that he mostly took were, the, were Trimalchio's Feast, uh, which is a center uh, centerpiece of of the um, uh, of the story, and also some of some of the stories of the of the three boys. Uh, but 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 the rest of the connective tissue is is essentially uh, fabricated from other sources. And he really sort of plays with that uh, episodic idea or that fractured idea because w- when you watch it, it kind of. It, it kind of seems like it floats. It goes from here to there, and you're out in the middle of some place, and there's lots of fog, and there's like this room with all these various art pieces. I mean, just the, the design and the concept of it is is really quite quite interesting, and I'm sure it was very um, uh, disconcerting to people who were maybe used to more standard uh, films at the time it was released. Well, very much so. But by then, you know, Fellini was sort of regarded as as, as sui generis. You know that 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 when you said Fellini esque, you kind of said it all. Uh, it was immediately evident to people what you were talking about, uh, and and he would employ people who would uh, who would stick to that uh, to to that pattern. So uh, he he would um, he would look for actors and and. And uh, writers, and especially designers, uh, who who would do what he said. I mean, he was he was very doctrinaire about that. He he would he would sketch out what he wanted, and they would build it. And if they he didn't like it, they'd tear it down. They'd build it again. Um, and uh, Danilo Donati, who didn't do that, but he did uh, Amacourt. Um, you know, he he was quite resigned to having to build and rebuild constantly. Um, the you're quite right. It's an episodic piece, but then so is the original. Um, and, but then Fellini was never much of a storyteller, was he? Uh, Dolce Vita is episodic. Uh, uh, you know, Juliet of the Spirits is episodic. But usually holds his stories together as a character, a single person. The thing with Satyricon also, and maybe this is just my view as an American, because, you know, the country's so young. I mean, us, you know, 230, 240 years or so. Um, when you talk about 
you know, Rome, it has, you know, thousand year history, you know, two thousand year history. How did that I mean, obviously it plays in Satyricon, but how did that sort of play did, did you find with Fellini that, you know, he had this sort of broad history to pull from and, and all of this, you know, old ancient stuff that he could work with that literally is right there on the street. Yeah, this is true. Uh, on the other hand, you know, he was not educated. He, he didn't read uh, history. He didn't know any history. He w- would employ people who did. Um, the guy who wrote uh, Casanova, whom I spent some time with, whose name eludes me for the moment. Anyway, he, he knew Casanova backwards and forwards. So Fellini employed him to, to write it. In the same way, Satyricon, he, he employed people to go and look for episodes and then he would try out a number of episodes and then choose the ones that worked for him. The, the thing about the Roman films of Fellini uh, is that, that uh, I think Orson Welles said, that um, uh, where Visconti is, is the, 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 the man who is the cosmopolitan, who is always at home anywhere, Fellini was always the outsider. He was always the kid from the country. Uh, he, was, though he, was, he was born in Romagna. Only his father was Romagnolo. Uh, his mother was from Rome. And moreover, his mother claimed to be related to the Barberini family who had produced a pope, among other things. And, and it was she who took uh, Fellini and his brother to Rome when they were just boys and stayed with them for a couple of years while they got sort of used to, to living uh, in Rome. The, the, the incidents that are described in Fellini Roma with the young Fellini arriving uh, at Tiamani and so on, and that's true, except it doesn't mention that he had his mum, mummy with him and she stayed with him for quite a while. Um, so uh, he, he grew up with this image of Rome as being the really great place, the important place, and the past being much more important than the present, which was absolutely the reverse of Rimini. Rimini is very, very much a, uh, an instance. It's a holiday town uh, in the country. You know, there's nothing much of history uh, there except for the Rubicon River, which Julius Caesar crossed and so on. But, but um, essentially he was... He was like a, a boy with his nose pressed to the to the shop window, looking into Rome and its history, but but never really being part of it. And that accounts for the for the enthusiasm with which he celebrates Rome. Rossellini, you know, people like that, they were blasé about Rome. Um, Visconti hardly bothered it, but uh, um, for Fellini, it was it was absolutely the name of the universe. I was curious about the process that he would use to kind of put these films together. He doesn't seem like he was necessarily that great of a businessman. So did he have somebody that was helping when it came to the producing and getting all the pieces and parts together once he had these ideas and started fleshing them out? Yeah, he always had trouble with the, with producers. He always underestimated the, the cost of making a movie. That was one of the big problems. So his films always ran over budget and often had to be closed down until he could find more money. Uh, his early, early mentor, of course, was Dino De Laurentiis, and, and uh, he worked with De Laurentiis for, for quite a long time. Um, he, he sort of endured De Laurentiis' uh, um, obsession with profit and so on. 
Um, and then he switched over to various uh, other people, uh, people are independents like Franco Cristaldi, uh, who was Torrenese um, and, and was uh, uh, married to Claudia Cardinale. So, so, so uh, you know, he, these people were sort of boutique producers. They could raise some money. Uh, but very often, again, they, they have to close down the film or, or, or cast it or something like that. Um, and then, then of course, he, he formed a company um, with, uh, what's, the, what's his name, the newspaper, Magnet, uh, his name eludes me, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the idea that the, that the money would come from publishing in newspapers and uh, would they would make movies with that. It didn't work because he couldn't collaborate very well. Um, one thing that he did benefit from is the the um, Italian system of prize giving. Uh, if you uh, could, if you came up with a good film project, the government would award you a certain amount of money, which is what in France now. Except in in Italy, it was put on the basis of prizes. If your film was really good, you were given a, a, an award of the first class, and that entitled you to so much government money. So that was how he was able to make films like Dolce Vita. Um, after that, he was in the hands of, of various producers, none of whom he could work with, all of whom he argued with. Uh, so you're quite right. Yes, he, he was, uh, as a businessman, he was a, a disaster. No, he, he never really had uh, a, a, a fully independent, competent <clears throat> financial uh, producer who could keep him under control. But uh, he was uh, he was Kubrick in that way. You know, people would sort of give him money and then they'd throw up their hands and say, well, you know, we just don't expect you to obey the rules, but that's okay. We, we believe you up with something great. I was curious about the title of Satyricon. This is one of a few films that he made where his name was part of the title. Was that, what was the, the, the decision on what films would have that and which films wouldn't? Yeah, Fellini, Roma, Fellini, Satyricon. Uh, it was a marketing thing. It didn't have anything to do with him particularly. Uh, he, he, was, no, he was not that egotistical. Uh, he, he he wouldn't care uh, about having his name uh, incorporated into it, but 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 there were so many other films w- with Rome and Roma in the title, and as I said, there were other satiricons that that to attach Fellini's name was a was just a sensible marketing uh, gesture. Last time we talked, you had mentioned that your wife was working on this documentary, and recently you sent me a a link to, uh, I believe, a trailer or a clip from it, and was hoping you could uh, talk about that documentary and um, what the, the sort of the basis of it is. Like, what, what is she sort of looking at? Right, yeah, no, it, in fact, it, it's uh, the, the avant-premiere, as they call it. The preview is next week at the Italian uh, Cultural Center here uh, in, in, uh, in um, Paris, and uh, it'll go out uh, on, on air more or less uh, to coincide with Cannes. Um, yes, it's part of a series uh, on on uh, FR3, um, France National France Television called Duels. Uh, you know, rivalry rivalries between individuals, um, and the rivalry between Fellini and Visconti uh, was, was one that struck me the moment I heard the, of, of this project. And and Marie Dominique and, and her production partner Christopher Jones uh, were chatting about it, and. I, 
I said, this is an obvious one, Fellini and Visconti, because uh, uh, they were they were always rivals from the very first days they met to their to their deaths, uh, and and yet it was it was a it was a, a, a duel which was fought. Uh, a la Italienne, as they, they, in fact, that's the title of the film, uh, Duel a la Italienne. Uh, it was all, all fought in a very courtly way with barbed compliments and little gifts and, uh, and, and snide remarks and uh, uh, behind-the-scenes attempts to poach uh, individuals uh, from from various movies. If you, you know, if Fellini could, he well he did. He hired away uh, Rotuno from from um, uh, from from the Visconti, uh, and of course Mastroianni worked for both of them. Claudio Cardinale worked for both of them. Uh, unfortunately, Mario Domini was able to to interview Claudia Cardinale. She she lives in Paris. Uh, she was very funny about the rivalry. Um, it, 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 it's it's a, it's a particularly Italian uh, thing, I think. You know, in, in other countries, uh, rivalry is much more flagrant, but the Italians do everything in a very in a very courtly way. So, so anyway, they they went to Rome. They they interviewed. Uh, a uh, num- number of people who'd, uh, who'd worked with both, screenwriters who'd worked with both. Um, they, they, they all said, yes, you know, you could not mention uh, Visconti in Fellini's hearing or Fellini in Visconti's hearing. Uh, and and uh, though they, when each one began a new movie, the other would always send flowers and a complimentary telegram behind the scenes uh, they were they were sort of very dismissive of one another. There's a famous case where um, uh, um, Fellini had just uh, seen a new um, uh, Visconti movie. I think it was a Senso. It's it's the it's the film it's the film of a fag. Film queer. Just uh, dismissing it like that. Um, the, the, but say it to his face, of course. Uh, because he, he secretly, uh, he, he not even secretly, but you know, uh, uh, fond, he he envied what Visconti had, which was you know he was came from aristocracy, uh, he, he was uh, widely read, spoke a number of languages. Fellini spoke a little French, a little English, uh, but not much. He had wide education. He travelled a lot. Fellini hardly travelled at all. Um, they were they were utterly different in in every imaginable way. And while um, Visconti didn't envy Fellini, uh, certainly the other way around, um, uh, Fellini as as he as he envied Rome, he envied what Visconti represented uh, that sense of, uh, of, of of the Italian aristocracy. It had always been a problem, you see, with Fellini, even when he first came to Rome and tried to get into the movies. He, he faced a, a, this group of, of aristocratic, uh, or, or if not aristocratic, then at least at least well-educated, uh, rather sophisticated uh, f- film directors who, who were all addressed as commendatore, dottore, professore. Fellini was more than maestro. Which, in the, on that scale of things, is, is is very little, if anything. So the film co- contrasts uh, these uh, these 
um, the people that they, that they worked with. It also points out, interesting thing, how often they would make movies that were kind of, they make movies at the same time, rival movies. The, the, the classic one is, uh, is Senso and La Strada, for instance. Two films you can't imagine were, you know, uh, more different and yet... Uh, you know, and then there's the leopard and eight and a half, and so on. So, so the, 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 there's always this this rivalry. There's a very good interview with with a, with a former assistant director who remembers the sc- first screening of La Strada uh, at at uh, Venice, where it won a prize over Senso, and uh, the each director had a, a little clique that would attend screenings and would create a, a, a sort of, uh, uh, you know, riot in a way in, in the audience. And in this case, uh, this guy who was a champion for Fellini noticed this uh, young guy who was a champion of Visconti who, who was whistling, making a very shrieking sort of whistle uh, from, the, from the middle of the, of the audience. So he, he made his way to him and pushed him in the mouth. Uh, and and thought that he'd knocked out all his teeth because bits of white were falling out of the man's mouth, but turned out it was a plastic whistle. But the guy with the whistle was Franco Zeffirelli. So you know it went it went quite high. Uh, these these rivalries. That's pretty good. <laughs> Do you think that that rivalry um, made them better filmmakers because they had someone to like look at and compare against? Uh, it's interesting. It's 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 possible. Um, it certainly uh, caused them to lift their game somewhat. I, you know, Fellini, I think, if he'd had his way, would have stuck with smaller films. But but the fact that that um, uh, um, things like Death in Venice and and uh, and in particular the Leopard you know, were, were getting international attention um, that 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 was a challenge. And and yes, he tried to. Uh, um, I, I think Fellini did actually. He was affected in that way, um, and more, I suppose, the producers actually, because the producers could go to to Fellini or to to Visconti and say, "Oh, you see what he's doing? You know, he got a, he got a deal with Universal. So, you know, the next thing is they would have to have a, a deal with Universal as well. So they were being egged on very much by the." Um, uh, by people behind the scenes and by the audience, of course. You know, the audience sort of recognised these, these rivalry and, 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 and they were very partisan. The Italians are extremely partisan, so uh, they, they, they would be urging their champion to, to do something different. So, yes, probably you could argue that, that, that an adversarial situation did, uh, did cause them to do better work. So you said that it's finishing up for Cannes. Do you know um, when it'll be released and if we'll get a chance to check it out here in the States? Well, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? But the, the problem is, of course, almost all of it is in Italian and French. Uh, I think I'm the only person in it who speaks English. Um, so the whole thing would have to be subtitled because here everything is dubbed. Uh, that's the French wave, dubbed for television. Uh, I, I suppose if... Um, if we put it into one of the documentary 
uh, festival in in North America into uh, uh, into one of the Canadian or, or Vancouver and Toronto are the obvious ones. Uh, then yes, it might it might get uh, some distribution. Uh, it'll certainly go out on DVD and it will be available on DVD. Uh, and hopefully, one could have a subtitled version. We've had because the, the, they the, the Mary Dominic's films are, are bought. Uh, by a number of countries, uh, which subtitle them, and, and among them uh, is Australia, and they the SBS out there do very good English subtitles. So yeah, it, it's not impossible that uh, that it would get a distribution circulation in in the um, in uh, the United States, and in. also they've just done another film about Chinichita. Uh, the two to go, would go very well together on a uh, on a DVD because, as you probably know, Chinichita is a, in in um, is a genuine risk that it will be uh, turned into a a spa uh, <laughs> and no longer be a film production studio. That's sad. A great piece of cinema history. It is. It's, it, 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 I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's an extraordinary. In its great days, it was just. It was. It was a miraculous place. You could wander on the back lot, and there were. There was the head that is dredged out of the canal in Casanova, and there. There was the statue of Christ that was carried uh, across Rome in Dolce Vita, and and there were bits of uh, uh, the ship from Le Neve Var and so on. Uh, it, it was remarkable. It really was like real movies. Beyond the trailer, is there a website or any place where people can get this, uh, learn more about the rivalry film? Uh, huh, good question. Um, I'll, 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 I'll get the link and send it to you. Uh, there is a, I think there's a link for Mary Dominique's company and also one for the channel that did. Um, probably once the film is actually released, then I'm sh- I'm sure there'll be a way to download it or to to get hold of it. So I'll make sure you get all that information. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time once again. No, it's always a pleasure. I'm very very flattered that you take an interest in the, in in these people. It's great that you do. You do tremendous work. I congratulate you. I have one more question that goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. If you don't speak French, why did you move to France? Ah, well, sex rears its ugly head in this to do with the film business. It's another long story, which I won't tell now, uh, but, but I, uh, I, I met a French woman in Los Angeles and uh, six weeks later sold everything I owned and moved to Paris, where I didn't speak a word of the language and knew nobody. Uh, but it's a good lesson, I think, that uh, you know to go with your, your impulses, because it turned out that Though from childhood I believed that Los Angeles was my was my spiritual home, it turns out that Paris is. Oh, that's wonderful. So I guess the nice answer is you did it for love? I did it for love, yes. That we go. do I mean it's you you do it you do what you do for love as well. It, it just depends what you mean by love. Thanks to John Baxter for coming on the show. You can hear him, oddly enough, Mike, on our Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie episode. John will be back again to talk about another Fellini film, Juliet of the Spirits, early next year. And you can find out more about his work, his books, and all of that at projection-booth.com. 
com. That man, I'm in awe of that man. I own several books, not even film-related. He wrote one about the Tunguska incident in Siberia. That's really good, because I collect anything Tunguska-related, and uh, there's not much. But he co-wrote one of the books on that. One of the very first books I bought as a kid was his book, Science Fiction and, and Film, which is great. So, you know, when you told me, I thought we were actually going to be talking to him. So Sorry. when Mike told me this, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then he goes, yeah, we, we've already uh, recorded them. It's like, oh, okay, well, you brought me down like three notches, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, plus the, uh, the the time thing, you would have probably, if I had to get up at, what, like seven in the morning, you probably would have given it six in the morning. To talk to John Baxter, I'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I probably wouldn't say anything, I'd be like, "Oh, oh you're really great." Oh, I don't know. So, what yeah. do you want to talk about? So, and we talked a little bit about this on this episode, Fellini Satiricon, about Fellini's films and sort of where this fits in. And um, so, I don't know. Uh, do you want to? I mean, I, I guess this is a conversation for Jim and I more than Mike. Um, <laughs> where do you? Uh, <laughs> wah, wah. I'm sorry, sir. Well, you know what's what's really interesting is Juliet of the Spirit. Which, which was the feature film before this, was so badly trashed by critics and so hated in Italy. I mean, it was a complete failure, um, and Fellini knew that. And so that really fed into his having trouble getting uh, the journey of G. Mastrono getting off the ground and sort of finding his way. So in a lot of ways, Toby Dammit sort of was the, the restart for him. And it allowed him to then move on and do something um, as crazy as Saturicon, which he'd never really done anything quite this outside of even dream logic. I mean, Juliet of the Spirits is a bizarre film, and it's all about dream logic. But it, it wasn't received well, and people saw it as sort of like a, oh, it's a poor man's version or it's a poor woman's version of Eight and a Half, and that we're getting a little tired of, of Fellini's craziness. This film sort of restarted him and allowed him then to move on and, and do things that were um, a little more – very different for him. Amarcord, Roma, things like that. So it's an important film, I think, in the Fellini canon. It sort of marks a clear change for what he was trying to do. The early films, we talked a little bit about this. I mean, the thing that's interesting about Fellini is he does come out of neorealist school because mm-hmm. that was post-World War II, and he had a hand in some of those early films. And then there were filmmakers such as, you know, uh, Rossellini who went in that direction. He didn't want actors, and they wanted street people. And then Fellini also wanted street people, but he didn't want to do realist film. He didn't want to do Bicycle Thief for 30 years. He wanted to do all this odd stuff. And to me, like we talked about, you know, Eight and a Half or La Dolce Vita, uh, La Strada, you know, those are the films that I'm really familiar with, sort of this period between, I'd say, like the late 50s, and uh, I haven't seen Juliet of the Spirits yet, so I would say the late 50s to early 60s, the first, you know, eight and a half films. Those are much more grounded. When people used to say, oh, it's Fellini-esque, I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, these right. are pretty straightforward narratives, and, and you can do that. When you watch Satyricon, that's where it starts to get odd, and then there was always a reference to people had to clowns in Fellini. So I think that may be later, as you were talking about the films that uh, you don't want to see again. But Juliet of the Spirits gets very clown-like in a, in a way, too, I think. Yeah, which, like I said, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward oh, to it. Oh, you're in for a treat. 
<laughs> so it's um, like, like I said, I see commonalities in, with with Satyricon and the earlier work more from sort of a, uh, a philosophical thing because I think if you were to like pull the credits off it and show people, you know, maybe eight and a half or Lestrada up against this and go, is this the same filmmaker? You'd be like, I don't, I don't think so. Like, I don't think you could see that. Well, I think maybe eight and a half you could. I don't know. I th- even by La Dolce Vita, I think it's pretty clear you're watching a Fellini film in the faces more than anything else. But I would agree that the earlier stuff, La Strada, Knights of Cabiria, there's a magic there. It isn't completely neorealistic at all. There's still just little things here and there that kind of put you off a little bit and make you see things in, in a slightly more, I don't know, magical way. I'll use magic just because I can't think of another word. Which makes more sense. I mean, when we talk about things such as Marcello, you know, floating over the city and the kid pulling right. him down and, you know, floating over the over the traffic and things like that, eight and a half, that's more magical than I would say with someone like Buñuel who was much more bringing up stuff because he wanted to make points, it seemed, even though he would right. deny that he was making a statement or deny that he was making some sort of moral judgment. Um, those things are more about the fantastical and I think owes itself much to, as we talked about this month in Roman films, the idea of, of Italian spectacle and the idea of big big things. And, and, and also there's that uh, concept, I would say, much more within a, Italian culture that I understand is that there is sort of this willingness to accept the out in some way, the, the odd, the magical, the mysterious, right. um, you know, the, the intervention in the hand of God in some way. Well, Fellini was very superstitious, and he, he always had a, a psychic or someone along with him. In fact, one of his psychics shows up in Satyricon, really outrageously done up because the man was pretty outrageous to begin with. But Fellini was very much into that. He believed in spirits. He believed in seers and prophets and everything. Very, very superstitious. So that all comes up. But you know, in a film like La Dolce Vita, you have moments that, even though they're kind of realistic, they bring on this sort of shimmering quality to them. And I'm thinking of the, the scene where Anita Ekberg and Marcello Mastriani are in the Trevi Fountain. And there's this, you know, they're, it's magic, and they're, they're about to kiss, and she, she puts the water on his head like she's baptizing him. And then all of a sudden, the fountain goes off, it's completely silent, and it's dawn. Like, the time has just passed like that. Um, it's a very weird scene. It's beautiful, but at the same time, it's very unnerving, because it doesn't seem exactly realistic. So in our research, as we know, the reason why it's called Fellini satiricon is because there was another satiricon uh, i did not get a chance to watch it but um i guess uh, you gentlemen have so there's the discussion I watched some of it too. i watched some of it um I, i'll probably finish watching it but i have to say that theme song is stuck in my head and i don't want it there make it go away <laughs> it's the most obnoxious thing and they keep playing that music over and over and over again i wanted to scream but it's so clearly not Fellini's Satyricon. <laughs> you have like a 50-year-old guy playing in, in Colpio, I think. He just looked terrible. I don't know. I, I wasn't too impressed with it, but I, I'll probably finish watching it. So, but Mike, you watched the whole thing? 
I watched the whole thing, and I know this is blasphemous, but I kind of liked it a little better at times. You're right, it's blasphemous. I know it is blasphemous, just because it was more of a straightforward narrative. I kind of enjoyed that. And it, it's funny, because I was reading about this film, and somebody was like, oh, yeah, well, the, you know, obviously this one is so much more tame than the other one, because, you know, Gatone is actually a girl, and they're fighting about this girl, and it's like... You didn't watch this with the subtitles, did you? Because Gatone is a boy, and they find out pretty much right when he's introduced into the story. And luckily, it doesn't become this kind of farce very often. There's one scene where there's a mistaken identity, but it quickly becomes like, oh, well, um, it's a... Uh, kind of reachy woman who uh, ends up uh, taking Gatone back to her bed with her so that they can um, spend the night together because Gatone didn't have a, a bed. And uh, she comes into Colpio's room and is just like, how dare you? Blah, blah, blah. Um, here, I want to buy the boy. <laughs> Because I want to have you know a piece on the side, and my husband won't uh, suspect because Gatone can pass as a girl so easily. And again, it's like wow, Francesco Pau, who played uh, Gatone, just absolutely gorgeous. You know, both as a boy and as a girl. Because at one point they cut his hair off and and say, okay, now he's a boy. I was just like, man, this guy is absolutely stunning. It was just amazing. You're right about Acetolo uh, being way too old. Right. It kind of reminded me of Tony Curtis a, a couple times, and that's not a good image. Old Tony Curtis, like the hairpiece Tony Curtis right. kind of stuff. Yeah. But I, I kind of liked that it was the same kind of stories, but spun in a different way. And just some of the philosophy and stuff of it was kind of interesting. So I won't say that it's a better film by any stretch of the imagination. I definitely think that's that Fellini Satyricon is much more interesting, but I really actually had a good time watching this other version of Satyricon, which is by Gianluigi Polidoro. And now it makes me really want to track down one of his later films. He directed one in 1998 called Hitler's Strawberries, which I, I <laughs> want to track down so bad because how can a movie with a title like that be awful? Those wacky Italians. It's a remake of Wild Strawberries starring Hitler. There you go. <laughs> Springtime for bring us, Hitler. Bring us back around to Bergman. There you go. Exactly. And then there was another film that was quote-unquote based on Satyricon, which is called Satirico. Cosissimo by Mariano Laurenti. That was one of these, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about uh, Italian comedy teams like the Dr. Goldfoot and oh, the Girl yeah. Bombs and that kind of stuff. This was another Italian comedy team. Oh, man. Uh, no subtitles on this one. And I'm sure that it probably was hilarious seeing uh, Franco and Ciccio doing their bit in this horrible, horrible film. Sort of the Italian who's on first <laughs> set during pre-Christian uh, Rome, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it doesn't start in pre-Christian Rome. It starts in the present. Uh. 1970, and then they break a vase, and somehow they wake up in the past, and Nero's there, and hilarity ensues. You know, when you, that, when you oh die my. at the palace, you really die at the palace. Oh, yeah. I, I was watching it just for Edwidge Fennick, who was in it, and even that wasn't saving it. So I'll definitely go back and watch the uh, the other Satur- the rest of the other Satyricon, except I just really am afraid that that song will never leave my brain. 
Oh, yeah. It's going to come back for oh, you. Oh, God. It's going to come back to haunt you. Then, I, I bet it'll come back in this episode again. Memo to self. No. Play song right about here. It's like, you know, the song from Barbarella. It's stuck in my head for years and years. Barbarella, psychedella. And this is the same thing as like, satiricon, satiricon. <laughs> I just wanted to strangle somebody at a certain point. Just, oh, God. Okay. So, yeah, when I listen to this episode, I'm sure I'm going to go freaking out. For me, it was uh, Return of the Dragon, the theme song in that. Oh, and then one of Rob's favorites was Adios Amigo. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they 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 paid for that song and they got their money's worth. <laughs> Just put it that way. Like, what was it? I I did the math. It was like four times in the first ten minutes. Yeah, I will say if you can track down uh, Chow Frederico, which is the documentary shot while uh, Satyricon's being filmed, it is so worth seeing because you see how Fellini directed. He talks the entire time and tells them exactly what to do. And there's the scene with the beautiful slave girl at the Villa of the Suicides when they're having the three-way. And they're showing Fellini direct it, and he's, he walks around because the camera's moving around them, or it's cutting between different... I can't remember if it's cutting or, or moving. He's basically talking the whole time. He goes, Martino, now you look down. Okay, Hiram, you look over here. Hiram, you touch her. And then the name of the, the model who was playing the woman that's now laugh. Ha 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 Martino, you look at her. I mean, every single moment was choreographed. It's just amazing. And then you see him getting angry and throwing pouting fits and, and you know, swearing at the camera. Because he didn't like the fact that there was somebody following him around the whole time. He wanted to take over and make a completely fictional documentary about him filming the film. Yeah, I read in one of the articles that somebody was there from, was it Life? It wasn't Look. I think it was Life who was doing a book about the making of Satyricon. I was like, oh, I'd like to track that down. Yeah, but. there's. It's. I think I know which one it is. There, there's, I, there's two books that I have. One is um, – the screenplay and uh, the treatment, his original treatment and photographs and everything. And then there's another book about being on set um, and, and during the filming. It's pretty amazing. Um, the documentary itself is a little – it's very of its time. There's a lot of jokey things and cute musical cues and even a theme song called Ciao Frederico, which you just want to scream when it comes on. But it's it's really worth to see what what was going on behind some of the scenes that he was filming. They show him filming the wedding on the boat and uh, the three-way and a couple of other things. Uh, it's fascinating, really fascinating. I heard that this is getting a criterion That's treatment. That's the rumor. That's the rumor, yeah. I saw nothing about it on their website, but this desperately needs uh, supplemental materials. I mean, that Ciao Frederico sounds fantastic. Let's put that on there. I mean, let's put Director's Notebook on there. Let's do a little documentary about what happened in those four years between the films. I mean, let's have something because that MGM disc, it's like, hello, bare bones. Got nothing for you, man. I heard that rumor. I've also seen nothing that would lead me to believe that. I don't know where uh, – somebody posted a cartoon on Facebook that showed something that looked like it would be a hint. But I don't know where that came from. I've not found that cartoon anywhere else. So I don't know. I know that they've done almost every other Fellini film. Uh, their Blu-ray of La Dolce Vita is coming out. So they got it away from Kino Lorber, I guess. 
that had that stupid Alexander Payne interview at the beginning. And they did do this as a Laserdisc yeah. back in the day, yeah. but... So let's hope, yeah, that because mean I would love to see this on Blu-ray, because I've not seen it on the screen since I was you know, 16 or 17. I think Olive Films is going to get it, and they're just going to put it out bare bones again. <laughs> it's going to be like their Invasion of the Body Snatchers oh, deluxe no. disc. Please. Nothing. Yeah. You might get a preview. Maybe. We can't afford it. Sorry. Nope. <laughs> oh, I hope not. Yeah, so I was going to ask, are there other films worth checking out that are similar, or do you see the influence? Because for me... While I was watching this film, and I, I think it's a very loose in connection, but I think influenced nonetheless, is I think it's this period of Fellini that was uh, very influential to Jodorowsky and Holy Mountain. For some reason, mm. <laughs> watching this and the bizarroness, sort of off the wallness of Holy Mountain, which we did a month or two back, uh, you really get that kind of feeling with this too. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I'm wondering if they because they're 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 all happening around the same time. Well, actually, no. Yudorowsky is a little is a little later, so he probably would have seen Satyricon, I would think that would be so up his alley. Yeah, it was seventy three. Um, so yeah, and this came out actually in Italy in sixty nine. It didn't get to the U S. till seventy. It's not. I can't think of a lot of films that are like this one. <laughs> Really? I mean, you do get the whole Woody Allen, Fellini bit going on um, where he's more interested. He's, you know, he wants like bizarre looking people in his films like Stardust Memories and things like that. But that's sort of like a that's so obviously an influence. It's not even interesting in some cases. But I, I, I really can't think of anything because this one is so strange. And there are plenty of very strange movies at the time. But nothing that, that comes close to being – I mean, it really is – for me, it really is like science fiction. It is such a completely different world that you have to figure out as you go along, which is the best kind of science fiction, I think. No voiceover in this one telling us everything that's going to happen yeah. or that is happening on screen. You know, one thing that was really interesting I found in the John Baxter uh, biography was his claim that Satyricon influenced interior designers for years to come. The look, the sort of like uh, – rustic Tuscan, you know, look to the rooms with the colors on the wall and everything. I don't know how true that is, but he seems to think that it was basically, he said, you couldn't go into an Italian restaurant in the United States after this film came out without thinking you were in a set from Satyricon. You know, who knows? But that seems to have been a huge influence um, is on interior designers. Yeah, we'd probably be remiss not to say that Donati, who did the designs on this one, went on to do designs on Caligula just, I think, uh, seven years later because it was shot in 76. So that whole time gap between when that was released and when it uh, or when it was filmed and when it was released always throws me off. So, All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Victorious! He was the proudest prisoner of the gods. That we may sacrifice his flesh. Victorious Titus! Spare my firstborn son! Religiously, they ask a sacrifice. I'll find a day to massacre them all. Away with her. The forest walks wide and spacious from rape and villainy. This was thy daughter. He that wounded her hurt me more than had he killed me dead. <laughs> the fall of an empire. 
nothing compared to the descent of a man. I am revenge, sent from the infernal kingdom. A sweet revenge! <laughs> now do I come to thee! Go to the Goths and raise an army there. And in the Empress Court there is a queen. Would murder? Stop her! For those who think revenge is sweet, I shall grind your bones to dust. Taste this. <laughs> From Tony Award winning director Julie Taymor comes a feast of power, lust, madness, and the ultimate sacrifice of love. Academy Award winner Anthony Hopkins. Academy Award winner Jessica Lange, Tony Award winner Alan Cumming, Laura Frazier, Harry Lennox, Jonathan Reese Myers. Titus. Welcome, my gracious lord. And welcome all. <laughs> That's right. We continue down the path of films related to ancient Rome and find Bill Shakespeare hanging out as we talk about Julie Taymor's Titus. So join us next week as we prime the pump for Shakespeare's September, a month of films and discussions about some of the adaptations of the Bard's greatest works. And before we go, we want to thank John Baxter for joining us. You can find out more about his book and his work over at our website, projection-booth.com. Also, special thanks to our special guest host this week, Jim Tushinsky, for coming back. We didn't scare them off last time. We talked <laughs> to you about finishing up your documentary on Wakefield Pool. I always said yes on our uh, Boys in the Sand episode and just wanted to know how's that rolling out and what's the latest. It's playing at film festivals now. Um, we've had some really successful screenings. I'm trying to raise the money to release it commercially on DVD and, and uh, video on demand since nobody wants to release a a niche documentary these days on DVD. You know, a company won't do it, so I'll do it myself. So it's coming along. It's uh, it's it's doing well, and I'm ready to move on to other stuff. You're going to go say yes to something else. I've already said yes to about five things. I just have to figure out which one I'll put my effort into. Well, thanks, Jim, for coming and uh, recording this show on your birthday. No problem, because I can't think of another film I would rather talk about on my birthday than Fellini Satyricon. You can find out more about Jim over at our website and connections to this week's film over at projection-booth.com. And you can also find a link over there to our iTunes page where you can go and leave us a review and some stars. We would really appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.